millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. It's a May 17th return to campus, but is that too late? Plus, there's news on students and sex work, controversy over inclusive assessment, and a new campaign on London Waiting. It's all coming up. I feel very strongly about getting the right people to the right places to fix the right problems. And look, if if the cure for cancer is inside the mind of a 19-year-old who struggles with a semicolon, then that's fine by me. And I think the funniest thing about it is that everyone... <laughs> Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on this week, as usual, two fantastic guests. Uh, in Haddenham, Nick Hillman is Director at the Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI. Nick, your highlight of the week? Well, I think I've got a professional one and a personal one. Uh, professionally, I've been getting to know a new colleague that we, HEPI's recently taken on board, Lucy Hare, uh, who many people in the sector will will know, and it's going to be a, a crucial part of HEPI's work going forward. Uh, and I've enjoyed being able to sit in the garden in the slightly better weather, watching. We have two little kittens who are exploring the outside for the first time, watching them frolic around, so it's felt properly springtime. Oh, excellent. And in Exeter, Sunday Blake is president at the Students Guild at the University of Exeter. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Um, I also have a personal and professional one. So my personal one is I took a lateral flow test for the first time today uh yesterday and professionally um so the 12th of uh april saw a lot of hospitality outlets opening and i got to see lots of my students uh meeting up with other students and filling the air with with joy and and happiness and it, it did make my heart sort of swell to see to see them having a good time after such a difficult year. Excellent. So we start this week with return to campus. After a couple of weeks of unusually public lobbying, the government revealed this week that students who've not yet returned to campus for in-person teaching in England won't be allowed to do so until May the 17th at the earliest. Nick, pull this apart for us. Well, uh, and it's important, I think, as you said then, that we recognise this is really an England-only uh, story. But the announcement was that uh, more face-to-face teaching beyond the face-to-face teaching that's already happening for some courses uh, cannot happen now until the 17th of May uh, at the earliest, uh, which for many courses and many institutions is too late, uh, many students, of course, too late to be meaningful. Um, and it's slightly odd because the big uh, government document outlining uh, this announcement starts with all the reasons as to why actually universities are not particularly uh, dangerous environments for the trans- transmission of COVID. It, you know, it's, it, the first three points are, are uh, universities uh, have worked very hard to make their environments safe, uh, that there's only very limited evidence that in-person teaching uh, spreads uh, this virus, uh, and also that um, the risks for staff are no higher than in other um, other occupations. So it's very odd that universities are not being allowed to reopen their campuses. And, and, and actually, Nick, just before you carry on, there's an amusing difference. So that do- that DFE document, when it was originally published in March, it, it gave that evidence. And now, <laughs> now DFE has added the word anecdotal at the front of that sentence on evidence, presumably to downplay the meaning of the evidence now that a different decision has been made. Uh, it, it, indeed. And uh, there's a, a one, some wonderful con- sort of textual critique of the two documents the old version and the new version on uh, on, on the wonky website that i would draw people's attention to because it's very useful and that is one of the very odd uh, subtle but odd changes um and i, I mean i find uh, uh, of course we're all very um, many of us I, I i'm with you uk and the russell group and university alliance and everybody else in being frustrated by this announcement uh, the government and the ucu obviously approve uh, of it but but it's really the absence of an announcement because actually what they've done is just delay a firm decision to a bit later so we're all talking about it as if the government's announced something they've really 
not really announced anything at all. They've announced the status quo continuing for longer than many of us feel is reasonable, given what's happening in the rest of society, given that most students are already back at their term time address. At least that's what our polling suggests. Uh, And when also when the government has said that they want to be evidence led and driven by the data, not by other things. And it just feels to many of us that that isn't quite what's been happening here. So I think it is a a regrettable, poorly explained decision. I've gone so far uh, to say in one speech I made earlier this week that I actually think it was one of of the biggest, if not the biggest, misstep the government has made specifically in relation to higher education since the crisis uh, began. And I think there's a lot of frustration out there. Uh, Sunday will have views, of course, but among students that they uh, can do lots of things, but they can't have face-to-face teaching on many courses. Sunday, isn't this fair enough? You know, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic and, you know, it wasn't going to make that much difference by this time at the end of the year anyway. And, you know, students haven't been vaccinated and, you know, they'll be they'll be they'll be spreading the virus. This is a perfectly reasonable decision, isn't it? This is frustrating for me because, like Nick said, I do feel that the guidance that was given a couple of months ago, a few months ago, has turned. And I don't think that putting anecdotal in front of it negates it at all. I was sat in... Um, September all the way through till Christmas with a lot of students saying that they were concerned about uh, in-person teaching during the lockdowns and I've <laughs> I've now got this situation where um, the government was saying no it's fine everything's fine the university was saying it's fine and now it's almost like the opposite is happening the government is saying actually it's not safe enough and I think well it's really interesting because all of last term you were sort of telling telling us it was and now suddenly it's not well actually the vaccine rollouts have been incredibly successful, thanks to um, the, NU- at the NHS. Um, a lot of students who are vulnerable have been vaccinated. Um, I, I know all of our disabled students in our disabled groups have been vaccinated. And I'm really struggling to see where the concern is. And I'm quite a risk adverse person. I, you know, I sort of worked from home the whole way through the pandemic, um, even when we were allowed to come onto campus I didn't come in and and at the point I'm at this point where I'm thinking this doesn't to me feel like it's a harm reductive measure this a point this at this point it feels to me that we are trying to allow students to go back right at the end of the year so that when students inevitably and they are raising issues writing complaints asking for refunds saying their education contract hasn't been fulfilled it's so that you know universities can turn around and say oh well actually you have had some face-to-face teaching um this is also why universities are scrabbling around to put on sort of extra curricular activities over the summer to somehow supplement students uh learning and and pacify any complaints they may be getting uh nick the quote that really caught the imagination of lots of people this week was greg Holbraith at portsmouth saying the vc at portsmouth saying uh, throughout the pandemic the overwhelming majority of students have behaved very well uh and can now go to the pub get a tattoo or drive cross-country for a self-catered holiday the only thing they can't do is access in-person teaching <laughs> and the tattoo thing you know it's, it's caught on lots of people have kind of requoted that but it's not you know that, that, that that's sh- surely that's not really the point is it because at any one time you can take two different aspects of society or two different groups in society and say look they're not you know that the the comparison is 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 fair on one group and not fair on the other isn't the point that at any one time you have to have some people some settings some parts of the country that are restricted because you're very slowly reopening you have to have a slow reopening in order to manage the impact of the pandemic don't you so it is a great uh, blog by Graham Galbraith. Anyone who thinks vice chancellors never put their head above the parapet and uh, really speak out should should read what he's got to say. It's full of uh, juicy uh, quotes like that, which, uh, uh, albeit, have slightly annoyed some tattooists and uh, people who are very keen on tattoos if you look on social media. Um, but I, I don't actually accept the premise behind your question for, for, for two reasons. The, the first is, uh, like you, I'm a parent and my kids have been back at school, thank thank the Lord, uh, for a number of weeks now. And there's been a sense, I think, throughout the crisis that higher education and schools' decisions should be in some way linked. There seems to be no link at all within the DfE between their decision-making on pre-18 education and their decision-making on post-18 uh, uh, education, at least when it comes to uh, universities. Um, and the second thing I would say is that earlier in the crisis, we were told that education would be a priority 
over all those other things. So if it's the case that we can't move in sync across the board in every area of life equally, why is it the universities are being put at the back of the queue rather than at the front of the queue? Yeah, okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> but, but, isn't, but, but look, hold on, Nick. Isn't, that, isn't it mainly because in, throughout the rest of education, apart from some bits and bobs in, t- in sort of boarding schools, you're not talking about major population moves, right? I mean, you know, people are in their local area. Isn't, in, in theory, isn't this about migration, you know, in, 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 into UK migration and actually international migration into the country temporarily? Yeah, but in theory, it, it might be. But uh, you should change your understanding of theory when the data tells you something different. And the data tells us that somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of students are already at their term time address. So the weakest of all the government's arguments is uh, students can't have more face-to-face teaching till the 17th of May because they'll have to travel back to their university address. I mean, I, I'd be great to hear from a Sunday if, if that's the mm-hmm. story in Exeter. I mean, half the problem is the government hasn't actually published any data to support well, this particular decision. I, I, I would also add that the data that we have not only justifies in-person teaching because it says that two-thirds of students are back but I'd also say that um, it's probably more than that um, and students haven't declared that they're back and I know that for a fact because when we found a World War II bomb on campus and it had to evacuate halls of residence we found around 300 extra students uh, there so we you know we know that students are back and two thirds is a is is an underestimate in my opinion, um, because students aren't are just not declaring that they're back. Of course they've come back. Okay, all right. Well, look, Nick, Nick, you you are quite kind of close to, you know, analysing government policy. You kind of live and breathe this every day. If 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 this decision makes zero sense and it's upset lots of people, why on earth has it been made? Well, I think that's a very uh, good uh, question. <laughs> I really do, but. Um, of course, uh, you know, it does show, I think, uh, somewhat of a disregard for our sector in the corridors of power. Um, our sector's often struggled to have the voice that it, uh, in my view, deserves in the corridors of power across Whitehall. Uh, and of course, these sorts of decisions, they're not just taken in the DfE. They're taken in number 10 and they're taken in, um, you know, the Treasury and the Cabinet Office and the sort of uh, really powerful uh, government departments. And we've just somehow slipped down the priority uh, list and that's uh, regrettable. I think uh, it's a great shame that the ministers that represent our sector, uh, the Minister for Universities and the Minister for Research, are less senior jobs in government than they used to be. Um, you know, whatever people think of Dominic Cummings, uh, he actually gave our voice, certainly some elements of what universities do, uh, a, 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 a powerful um, voice in the in the middle of uh, Number 10 Downing Street, and he's gone. Um, so I just think we've somehow slipped down the pecking order, and that's really worrying with the spending review coming up later in the year and, you know, post-COVID uh, uh, decisions to be made. So so we, we need to learn uh, from this. This tells us actually something about how policy is made that we need to recall and, um, uh, you know, digest and respond to. Sunday, at the significant risk of kind of breaking one of my own rules, which is to ask the student person on the, on the, on the panel, what do students think? What's your sense of how students regard this decision in the kind of wider context of politics because you know i read some stuff that says well you know students are always going to be left-wing and will hate a tory government but is something else going on here is this is this sense that students have been forgotten worse over this over the over the way the pandemic's played out oh oh, absolutely no students feel that across the board um you know i have a a wide range of of friends with different political opinions um a very good friend of mine is just stepping down as the conservative association chair and um he he thinks the same this is it's i think at the point now it hasn't it's not anger anymore you know we saw a lot of anger a lot of um open letters and petitions happening um i actually think that students are in a state of exhaustion at the minute um i I think that it is indefensible um how students have been treated and I think that this actually transcends political allegiances mm. at this point. And, and Nick, this takes us back to that. So, you know, one of the things that you've done at fair, fairly regular intervals, actually, is track the kind of political opinions of students and to, you know, think about and speculate how that might impact elections and so on. And we're, we're back here again, aren't we, to this thing about is it, <laughs> you know, is it the sector that tells students to be left wing or is it uh, students that tell the sector and student unions to be left wing? And how long will students harbour these opinions if they feel, you know, forgotten or betrayed? You know, is there a moment in their 
is where they switch to being more right wing. All of that stuff is kind of in the mix here. Yeah, it's a it's a huge and really interesting uh, issue. And sometimes people talk about the student vote as if it's a sort of unchanging thing. But but given the turnover of students, you know, most most people do a degree for about three years or so and then go off into the labour market. Um, we're talking every election is a completely different group of voters, pretty much. Um, and they're not fixed. They don't all always vote, you know, Labour, for example. Uh, actually, there have been elections where, um, you know, they've done, the Lib Dems have done very well. Or there, there was one European election where I think the Greens and the Tories jointly topped the student vote. So it's wrong to think of them as a completely unfixed, un, sorry, fixed, unchanging uh, morass. Um, and of course, the next general election probably won't be till 2024. So actually, the next uh, election, uh, when it comes round, uh, we'll have, again, a, an almost completely different group of students to the ones we've currently got. In fact, we'll have people whose schooling and GCSEs and A-levels have been incredibly disrupted by uh, the current crisis, and they may vote uh, accordingly, depending on you know how policymakers respond to the crisis once the worst of the crisis is over. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, Claire Adams here, Head of University Success at Handshake UK. I have a piece on Wonky this week entitled Digital Capital is a Whole System Issue. Building it takes more than hardware. The piece explores the importance of acknowledging both the digital divide and digital capital as higher education plans for a more blended student experience, as well as highlighting that digital and offline environments do not exist separate from one another, existing patterns of inclusion or exclusion that impact students' learning connections, outcomes and experiences overall still exist in a digital environment. Handshake's latest research finds that whilst technology and virtual recruitment practices ought to be a huge leveller in creating opportunities for students, many employers are swapping one closed network for another, with 63% of employers we spoke to saying they were now more reliant on online professional networks and a further 57% saying they are more reliant on personal or word-of-mouth referrals, a practice we are calling nepotism. We've only really begun to scratch the surface of these issues. However, as we collectively begin to further our understanding and as universities and employers across the globe look to transform their work in a post-COVID world, there is huge potential to work collaboratively with technology providers to truly build back better. Now, next up, it says here that university students will not be marked down for poor spelling, bad grammar and incorrect punctuation. Surely not. Sunday, what's all this about? Yeah, so um, Monday there was um, an article in The Times looking at the efforts of some universities to adopt more inclusive assessments. And this has sparked a series of opinion pieces on whether it is elitist to require correct Grammin and speller, spelling, spellers, there we go. Is that elitist? I don't know. It is early in the morning. Early mornings are elitist. The London University of Arts has guided staff to actively accept spelling, grammar or other language mistakes that do not significantly impede communication unless the brief states. You get the point. Um, there was uh, let, le- uh, readers' letters in the Times who are very critical of the idea um opinion piece from Melly Phillip yeah, um who called, right in. Yeah. she called it a, a a cultural wrecking ball um obviously some telegraph pieces uh John Humphreys weighed in um and, and actually ended up with the office of students publishing a response distancing itself from the practice with a published response <sighs> I mean, to be honest, I'm not a pedagogical expert, but I do actually find this quite boring. I I was a little bit confused because, you know, contextual offers exist and mitigation and reasonable adjustments have always existed. But I thought I would try and grapple to it, which is why I messaged you, Jim about midnight last night saying where did this come from I can't actually find the original guidance um, because all I could find was verbatim woke, woke brigade postmodernism social justice warriors Orwell's 1994 I mean the hyper the hyperbole or should I say the hyperbole is astounding <laughs> um, I, and I'm actually too tired to engage with it um, I I don't think it's decrying the end of the English language. Um, I, I especially don't think that, uh, as one writer said, that doctors will no longer be examined on whether to decipher the heart from the lungs. <laughs> I mean, the, it's very—it's just old man shouts at cloud, really. I, I'm, as I said, I'm not a pedagogical expert, but I am in HE because 
I feel very strongly about getting the right people to the right places to fix the right problems. And look, if if the cure for cancer is inside the mind of a 19 year old who struggles with a semicolon, then uh, that's fine by me. And I think the funniest thing about it is that every, <laughs> every single article, every single one of them uh, mocked the concept by writing a sentence with bad spellings. So they put students have the right, spelled R-I-T-E, or exams, spelled um, E-S-C-A-M, you know, to, to, to hone in on their, their point about clarity and precision. But I was laughing because it backfired because I knew exactly what they meant. <laughs> and it just completely undermined their point. They were like, here, I'm going to spell a word wrong to, to make my point about clarity. But everyone um, everyone understood it. So I think this is all a bit of hype over nothing, to be honest. It's not official policy from Office for Students with, in, in terms of guidance. You know, students still need to get uh, entry-level requirements to get into university. They have to exhibit a, a level of proficiency. I just think that it's become a little bit, you know, a bit over the top to me. But but what what do I know? I don't write for the Times or the Telegraph. Or the Mail. Now, uh, Nick, this speaks to some, you know, wider, wider issues, doesn't it, about what higher education means and who ought to go. It, it does. And, and, and also it speaks about the size of the sector, I think. You know, many of the authors writing those articles that Sunday's just mentioned went to university many decades ago, uh, long before we had a mass university system. And I've always thought the shift from an elite to a university system, uh, to a mass university system does have to necessitate changes at the institutional end. Uh, and, you know, and this is partly what's going on here, that, that it's universities responding to their student bodies. And I think, it, of course, uh, it was interesting that one of the examples was an arts university where, of course, um, you know, your precision on your grammar and your spelling, if you're doing, a, I don't know, a jewellery design course or something, it's probably less important than if you're doing an English language or an English literature uh, course. Um, but I've got to say, I, I, I mean, I am in two minds on this one because uh, and one of, the, one of the frustrating things about this week is, is people shouting over each other rather than actually discussing, uh, uh, you know, the, the real content. I think both sides sound a bit shrill and a bit defensive. Um, I, I, I'm in two minds about it because, of course, we do do students a disservice if we imply that some of these things don't matter uh, at all, because when they come to put in job applications, for example, uh, these things, you know, your job application could literally go into the bin if you have uh, uh, more than one or two spelling mistakes or grammatical mistakes. And both your organisation, Jim, Wonky and Happy, take, uh, you know, uh, we both spend huge amounts of time editing other people's work to make sure uh, it's grammatically accurate. And so, so I don't want to come across as too hypocritical say, by saying none of this matters. I think it does matter. Um, but I also think one of the things that surprised me in the commentary is none of the pieces that I've read taking the mickey out of these universities for doing this end by saying, well, maybe, just maybe, if there's problems in the quality of students' written work, maybe, just maybe, it's something to do with resources and support for students. None of them said, uh, you know, none of them noted, for example, the increase in the staff-student ratio since they were a university. And if it's the case that they think uh, uh, universities are, are, are following the wrong path here, well, you know, universities would need a hell of a lot of extra resources to do the things some of these commentators are saying they should be doing. Yeah, and Sunday, none of them said, I mean, you know, just to carry on next point a bit here, none of them, none of them talked about what happens before people get to university either. I mean, it's, it's this, it's this, oh, universities have done, what have universities done, universities haven't done anything at this yeah, point? Other than... I, I, I think, I mean, there's two, there's two sort of points that have come up in what Nick said that I like, I, I would like to respond to. I think Nick's absolutely right. And, you know, someone who churns out a lot of written content myself you know he's 100% right that for some some roles and professions and remits do require that in, in incredibly um detailed attention to grammar and spelling but um it, it, for some students that's just not the case and it always reminds me of that 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 teacher in maths right who said to me you need to learn long division because you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket and I'm like well welcome to 2021 here's my iPhone and it's always in my pocket and I just think that you know we do have technology and systems in place that that work towards eradicating the more arduous and laborious parts of academic labor that is something that happens I don't know what's going to be here in 20 
31. But, you know, in 2011, I was being told I wouldn't always have a calculator in my pocket. And now I do. So, you know, we can talk about things like Grammarly, different AIs that are helping students with their with their grammar and spelling that makes makes that attention less important. Um, and, and the other thing I think is that what I really uh, I want to point out, and, and I say this a lot, is that it it I understand that, you know, when people say, oh, uh, grammar and spelling is, is elitism. Now, I, I don't I take a offense by that. And I actually did agree with some of the writers because I obviously I'm very vocal about the fact I come from a working class background. I'm care experienced and six percent of care experienced students go to university. If someone turned around to me when I got in and said, you um, you probably can't spell. I would, I would think. Excuse me. Yes, I can. Um, but I, you know, this 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 grouping of underperformers in and and mediocre students into widening participation groups, and the idea that widening participation schemes are responsible for mediocre students sitting on seats well okay let me throw that back at you because i've met some mediocre students at university and they didn't come from wine and participation circles they came from schools that taught them how to shroud their mediocre mediocrity in good grammar now there there is something that is never discussed are we going to start saying stop looking at the grammar and start looking at the content of of essays and i think that you know class background does have an impact on how you how you express yourself so i i have to say that whilst i agree with them that yes widening participation groups of students do have the intellect and the ability to produce high academic quality content let's not forget that actually a lot of people and i look at some of the writers in in not pointing out to these particular writers around around this piece but you know there are people who who write for um papers who come to uh, exeter and give talks and i think yes what you're saying is incredibly grammatically correct is incredibly eloquent but you're not really saying anything so <laughs> I, I do think that there is something to be said here about focusing on content yeah, it's a good point, isn't it, Nick? I mean, you know, you, you will know this. When you get when you get a blog in, sometimes it's really well written, but doesn't really say anything. And then other times it's really badly written, and you have to spend a bit of time on it. But my God, is the is the point powerful? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And of course, writing um, in a easily accessible way is is a great skill. But as Sunday said, it's more relevant to some professions and some careers than others. I mean, what I take away from this is I just wish the editors of our great national newspapers had a slightly more diverse group of people on their speed dial when it comes to commissioning articles about our sector. You know, Melanie Phillips, John Humphreys, you know, uh, they're both very interesting people, but we've probably heard you know, we know what they think about higher education. Uh, you know, if we're going to learn uh, from this row and this debate, let's hear some new voices and some uh, a wider range of commentators. Yes. And, and uh, yeah, well, for example, you know, it's a good point, Nick. I never would have thought when I turned on the right stuff the other day that I would hear from Eve Pollard on this subject. But here's a little clip. Totally, completely. How are you ever going to get a job when you can't spell? I mean, it's, it's crazy that it thinks it's white and it's male and it's something... Um, I used to, I mean, I'm so old that when I started out meeting blokes, um, they used to write me letters. And when they couldn't spell, I dropped them. I mean, I just thought <laughs> there's no point carrying on with this bloke. She's obviously never read anything and probably can barely write because he couldn't spell. It's essential. And in fact, let's face it, in the old days, we'd be taught how to spell when we were six, seven and eight, when it's easy to absorb that stuff, and they should bring that back. Yeah, but, but Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Durham University is set up in order to extract uh, the vast wealth of the Bishop of Durham, put it to useful purpose. And so they, they get off and set off in a very... Um, uh, clear mode that they're like uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, uh, traditional curriculum, although they do branch out and do new and exciting things like an engineering course. Um, but what happens later is there's a civic need for uh, higher education. So Owens, uh, uh, John Owens, is uh, a merchant and he sees well, what Manchester needs is its own college. So he founds, by giving them a, a sizable amount of money in his bequest, a college to be set up. And obviously they, they set up and say, great, we'll have a university. 
but the other towns in the north say, oh, no, you can't have a university on your own. We have to have something along the same kind of lines. And so there's a sense that, well, you can't possibly set up just one college to do that. So Owens is refused, after it's been going for a few years, the right to become a university. So what it gets is a federal university, an examining university, kind of similar to the University of London. Um, so the university will set the exams and Col Owens College will do the teaching. Now, the weird thing is, for the first couple of years, it's only Owens College is the only college of this, and the Victoria University uh, only has the one college. But Liverpool and Leeds both get their act together and set up colleges and apply to join. And so over time, they get a federal university, which is a bit of an awkward compromise. Uh, the federal university is chaired in turn by the vice-chancellors of the different universities. They all teach the same curriculum. The students all take the same examination they're all graduates of the Victoria University uh, and that's ticking along okay uh, until Birmingham wants to develop its college it's got a college it's got a found uh, a d generous uh, donor uh, Josiah Mason who's given them uh, plenty of cash he's a businessman um, and they're setting off in the same way. They're going to have a federal university too. There's going to be University of the Midlands. There's talk in uh, Bristol of a University of the Southwest. This is the pattern we're all going to go to. But they, instead of uh, proceeding on their happy path, Joseph Chamberlain becomes uh, the uh, president of Josiah Mason College. Incidentally, he was a business competitor of Josiah Mason, uh, but he becomes president of this college, and part of his big thing for Birmingham is to take this college forward. But he's also made rector of Glasgow University, so he spends quite a lot of time in Glasgow, and he likes two things about it. Firstly, he likes the fact that they've taken the campus out of the city centre and put it in an attractive new campus. So he likes that idea. He also likes that it's the University of Glasgow, not some kind of mixed you know, federal university somewhere else. It's a university for the city, doing things for the city, and which people are very proud of. So when he comes back to Birmingham, he says, we're not having a federal university. We're going to have a university of Birmingham. We're not, you know, otherwise I'm going to give up and we're going to, you know, stuff, stuff a lot of you. So because he happens just so happens to be a member of the cabinet he bends the will of Whitehall to say we're going to have a, a single teaching university. University of Birmingham will not have any extra colleges, it'll just be a university on its own and that will be, you know, that, that's going to be the whole of it. He gets by uh, dint of that to erase the name of Josiah Mason uh, from the name of the college, um, obviously not part of his original plan, so the University of Birmingham goes off on its way uh, and, and Mason is, is gently let to, to be forgotten. Now this excites the people in Liverpool because they've got their university college but they're part of the Victoria University and they say, well, hang on a second, if Birmingham can have its own university, we've got to have our own university. So they petition to have the Victoria University wound up and then become a university in their own right. So you'd expect the Victoria University to object to this a bit but the University of um, the, the Yorkshire College really objects. Probably, the speculation is because they're a bit weedy, a bit small, and unlikely to become a university in their own right. So they make a strong objection to the winding up of the Victoria University. So Liverpool's kind of trapped. Manchester Owens College is thinking, well, we, we could be our own university, that'd be quite good. Um, but Leeds is vehemently against. So the Privy Council, who's the only people in charge of universities or education at that time, forms a committee, a really high-powered committee. And the kind of people who go and pitch to this committee are Haldane, who are you know, famous for all of these other exciting higher education things, uh, 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 Sydney Webb, all sorts of really important reformers think the idea of a, a teaching university is, is worth pressing, so they hold this great committee hearing. And the minutes are fabulous, because there's just mad arguments. The people on both sides argue with each other, these senior politicians play out there all their arguments. There's some great dialogue as people say, you know, are you bringing standards down by setting up your own university? Oh, no, we're not, etc., etc. So... At the end of this, the Privy Council agree that Liverpool can be its own university. Manchester can keep the Victoria University, which incidentally is why it was called the Victoria University of Manchester through to its, its merger with UMIS. Um, but then that leaves Leeds in a slightly complicated position because Yorkshire College has been arguing that it really believes in federal universities as a way of kind of keeping the thing going. So the Privy Council turn around and say, OK, you can be a federal university. Well done. There's a college in Sheffield that'd like to join you. Now, suddenly the people in Leeds get really cold feet because they quite now fancy the idea of being their own university and don't really want to have the Firth College people in Sheffield join them in a new federal university. So they, they get cold feet about this. So they write a charter saying, hello, we'd like to be the Victoria University of Yorkshire. And they send it in. Um, but the Privy Council think, well, hang on a second. If you don't want to play this federal game, you can't be the University of Yorkshire because you don't want to include everybody in Yorkshire in it. So... 
there's a wonderful copy in the in the um, records in the National Archives where what they do is they amend the charter by crossing out every mention of Yorkshire and writing Leeds in pen in the copy of the charter and send it back to them saying you can have this charter but you're going to be the University of Leeds you can't be the University of Yorkshire so it's the beginning of the end of the federal principle when it comes to it, the uh, universities in um, uh, the, the colleges that form the southwest, they're not keen. Um, the, the final attempt is to set one up in the East Midlands. Um, and so when they lay the foundation stone at the University of Nottingham, there's still a sense uh, in the 20s that they might found a, uh, an East Midlands university. But Loughborough and Leicester aren't keen. They want to have their own universities eventually. And the federal principal in England dies off. Now, next up, there's been a surge in the number of students selling sex since lockdowns began. The English Collective of Prostitutes said calls to its helpline from young people at university and college have risen by a third this year. Sunday, tell us more. Um, Towards the end of last year, the University of Leicester published a toolkit to help staff support students engaged in sex work. The university claimed its aim was to positively support its students whilst fulfilling its legal obligation to safeguard vulnerable adults and children. The toolkit takes a non-judgmental approach to sex work, while increasing numbers of students have turned to sex work for money during the pandemic. Um, This was covered extensively. Um, I could have predicted this, actually, because I think it was about three or four years ago, uh, Brighton University had a stall at their Freshers' Fair. Uh, where they were given advice on how to stay safe in sex work um, and, and, and they had a similar uh, coverage. I think what both incidences of press attention left out, which as a, you know, as a student representative breaks my heart, is that both of these um, were instigated um, and executed by student sex workers themselves, specifically student sex workers who'd had quite a bad time in the industry. Obviously, this has also highlighted the economic reasons behind students selling explicit images on sites like OnlyFans, um, but some other platforms sort of like the Mail and Telegraph have been a lot more critical towards the university um, and, uh, and, and, and claiming in, in some cases that the universities were acting as, as pimps by proxy, um, which I take, uh, I, I mean, that's just, that's just bad a bad interpretation of it uh, genuinely mainly because students aren't engaging in sex work to uh, pay tuition they are paying rent bills food um that sort of thing um so I, you know there's not there's not much scratching under the surface that's going on and i think it's very easy to get very outraged about this um it's you know prostitution is such an old divide um but i think what what this was trying to do and has done (laughs) is open up conversations around sex work and let students sex workers know that the university will support them and that's actually very important because a lot of universities have uh, morality clauses so that is that uh, if you go into the disciplinary um, documents you can find morality clauses where um you know if if the student uh if the student is in, engaged in behavior that brings the university into disrepute they can be uh, removed from the university um they can be fined and, and this is really important because it has really really knock on effects if a if a student sex worker isn't comfortable coming to the university they're not going to be able to approach well-being. They're not going to be able to apply for hardship funds. Um, you know, hardship funds um, infamously ask for three months of bank statements and student sex workers don't necessarily want their transactions for hotels or private sexual health clinics um, being shown to the universities. Um, they can be evicted from their homes. So rent from immoral earnings is still a reason um, people can be evicted, um, and, and and most worryingly is that student um, sex or all sex workers can actually have their children removed from their care. Now we know from work with the English Collective of Prostitutes that two out of three student sex workers are actually parents as well. So this is you know it goes against this idea that um, student sex workers are what. Well, quite ageist and sexist um, stereotypes that that sex workers all young naive women being pushed into sex work by their institution who's painting it as a glamorous career actually um, the the data shows that the majority of student sex workers are parents who are juggling uh, you know childcare 
the degree and the need for income in a short space of time. Um, again, we are approaching sex work with our preconceived ideas of what of who a sex worker is. Nick, you know, has something changed now? Is something new going on here? You know, has the pandemic exacerbated something, or is this just, you know, the the tabloids being, you know, pr- pr- producing the same old stories? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, at least twice a year, at least twice a year, the story comes round about uh, the proportion of students uh, doing sex work for uh, money. Um, and uh, I actually welcome Leicester's initiative, by the way, because I think anybody who actually reads what Leicester have produced will realise it's actually a very responsible document with links to all sorts of helplines and uh, uh, and things like that. Um, I don't believe there's been a big increase in the number of students uh, um, undertaking sex work because I say that advisedly and carefully, um, but I say it because a lot of the data in this area is really bad. I mean, really bad. So a lot of it comes, for example, from things like Save Our Student um, surveys, actually about students' finances, not primarily about sex work. And they are not normally representative polls either. So we've actually, uh, a HEPI, undertaken our own survey on all these issues, which we'll be publishing later this month uh, on the 29th of April, um, where we suggest that we find that actually only 1% of the students in our survey, um, to give you one one of the, one tiny little uh, data point from it, only 1% of the students in our survey have actually experience of sex work. Sunday uh, has rightly pointed out to me that uh, our survey is primarily of young students students and some students undertaking sex work are, are older um, but but one percent is very different from for example the seven percent number that has been floating around from other polls um, I, I think at heart of course this is about finance for many students and one of the very many bits of the auger report we're still waiting for a proper response to is whether there should be a proper detailed review by the office for students or somebody else about students uh, living costs uh, and we set maintenance uh, numbers almost randomly uh, and I would actually like to see that bit of the auger report probably taken forward so it's not just a conversation that the tabloids love to write about in rather salacious detail about students sex workers but it's a wider conversation about students employment and students living costs Sunday set aside this question of prevalence for a minute that you know, more broadly I have found myself talking to uh, all sorts of people this week about harm reduction because one of my predictions is that out the back of the pandemic we will end up with um, students undertaking much riskier behaviours more generally you know in relation to all sorts of aspects which are a cut and shut of people being cooped up for a long period of time and also people um, you know suddenly having some uh, freedom and also people not having a lot of money but you know have we got a, a debate coming again about harm reduction and kind of condemnation in the press of young people and their behaviours and then young people saying well what we need is support and pragmatism you know is that coming uh, well yeah well it's already it's already here jim um i, I think you know any anything around um, risky behavior drug consumption uh, drinking student sex work um any behavior that's that's risky um results primarily in the in the condemnation of of the students partaking in it and then in in condemning the the support systems that that jump up around them in trying to reduce that harm i think you know as as you've rightly pointed out, this is this is about the cost of living. This is about rent, bills, and food. It's about the fact that you know sex work requires no qualifications, no barrier, no formal interview. Uh, they can work from home. Um, uh, visas with limited working hours for international students um, can be circumvented with uh, a, an informal labour market that sex work is. Um, students at Oxford and Cambridge can uh, do part-time work during term time because of its secretive nature. You know, there's all these there's all these systems in place that students are having to navigate, and and sex work um, is 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 what they turn to because it's the thing it's the thing that gets them through. I think what frustrates me um, is that I don't see the the outrage circus rallying around these issues of which student sex work is a symptom, not the you know not the cause. Um, you know where were the where was the mass outrage and headlines um, around students forced to pay rent on rooms that they weren't in with income they didn't have through the pandemic? There was no outrage for that from from these particular writers and. And yet when students were turning to make very difficult decisions around their income, around where they find the money for those empty rooms, that's when the outrage is coming. The pandemic drives the latest in a long line of changes to the way students access learning resources. 
In the main, students no longer buy their own books, which puts pressure on libraries to support access to materials. The slow shift to e-resources has been amplified by this year's emergency remote learning. Libraries argue that publishers are setting prices too high, and in using bundle deals make resources harder to buy. Academics are concerned that they cannot use the best materials to support learning. Students complain that they can't access the resources they need, and publishers worry that their business models are not fit for purpose. We don't know exactly what the future should look like, but we know things are changing more rapidly than anyone had anticipated. On the 28th of April, we are running a wonky at-home event in partnership with Cortex in the form of a micro-commission on learning resources. Our expert commissioners, supported by you, the attendees, will hear the evidence from students, academics, librarians, publishers and researchers. We'll examine how students really engage with learning resources and tackle the thorniest of questions. Who should pay for these resources? You should go to wonky.com slash events to book your place for this event. And finally, London Hire has published a report on the impact of removing the London waiting in HE funding allocations, supposedly in pursuit of the government's levelling up agenda. Nick, what's your old colleague Diana Beach up to here? Well, I think, yeah, Diana uh, is really uh, grabbing the bull by the horns uh, at London Hire, and she's uh, really gripped onto this issue that was in the grant letter in January from uh, the department, the Office for Students, essentially saying the extra teaching grant that uh, the government uh, via the OFS gives to London universities should uh, disappear. Um, and uh, it exists, of course, because there are genuinely extra costs in delivering uh, higher education. In fact, any education in London because of things like, um, you know, extra staffing costs, salaries uh, are, are, are higher in London. Um, and uh, the government, of course, though, is aware that London universities are a great success story. Um, they have expanded uh, a lot, including among uh, uh, more disadvantaged students. Um, and they have adopted a conception of levelling up that seems to necessitate levelling down for the areas of the country uh, that have had these extra money. And I don't think that's really what people thought the government meant by levelling up when they first started talking about levelling up, but it does seem to be uh, what it means because the teaching grant uh, is pretty much frozen. So you have to reduce somebody's income from the teaching grant if you're going to increase somebody else's. So what the government's doing is, you know, very straightforwardly reducing money to London institutions uh, and increasing it a bit for uh, for others. Um, and so they're seeing it as a zero-sum game. It's about £64 million in question. Some uh, Diana's numbers show, for example, that one university will go from a £2 million deficit to a £5 million deficit. I think what I take... I think my number one takeaway from that bit of work is the reminder that not all London universities are the same. So if there's people in Whitehall that think, well, you know, maybe they're really big names in London, full of international students, they'll be okay. Uh, That's not true of every single higher education institution in London. Um, and, And it's really timely, this campaign, because there's an OFS consultation on the change. There's a London mayoral election going on. There's a spending review being prepared in Whitehall. Um, uh, my final point, though, is, you know, uh, London Hire, uh, you know, are fighting a good campaign and they need to fight a good campaign because uh, when I dipped my toe in this water a few years ago and I suggested the maintenance support package for students in London should be even higher, the, you know, the disparity between the London maintenance package, the package for elsewhere should be bigger because London is such an expensive expensive place to live uh you know the comments i got uh it was in a guardian piece below that uh piece from people who saying london gets everything why should london have yet more were very vehement very strongly felt so so london have done the right thing here they're bringing real evidence to the table to show why this is not just special pleading this is actually a real issue about uh the diversity of london institutions uh, and their students who are poorer very often on average uh, than other students um you know need to be taken seriously sunday so far this is about um institutional funding right but you know i I guess it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that one of the things that might happen when auger comes along the final response to auger review comes along is that someone starts looking at the london waiting on the maintenance loan and you you know one of the questions that does come up a lot 
um, is if you look at those league tables that come out from like you know private from accommodation providers and so on every five minutes you've got a kind of cost of living index around the country there's no doubt that some parts some university towns and cities are really really expensive to live in why should london get all the waiting when you know so quite a few of those for example that tumble into the inbox would tell me that exeter is an extraordinarily expensive place to live um so i think yeah this obviously this is something that i struggle with and i i do feel quite strongly about it because i hear a lot of um arguments that disadvantaged students in london are more likely to stay in london for, un- for their university so um you know if you're looking at the london universities you can you can pinpoint that there are disadvantaged students from london boroughs going to london universities um and a lot of the sort of a lot of the higher institution providers that they're going to are the ones that will be training key workers um will be contributing to widen participation um so i think that's quite important uh, to talk about but I, I do think that there is in these conversations there is an overlook around things like or places like the southwest for example so i'm in exeter um i i am acutely aware that our intake from the local region is so small okay we we don't actually get that many students um from 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 the southwest coming to exeter university and on top of that our transport routes are absolutely awful right so i think that there was a, a student that i met who lived in cornwall and she was traveling in on a bus that left her village three times a day it took two hours so of course i appreciate that you know conversations around london waiting need to focus on the cost of living in london but we also need to acknowledge that london has very good transport routes is very well connected and in these conversations what i don't want to get lost is the disadvantaged students who live in impoverished areas of places like Cornwall. Nick, I'm accused a lot of, um, you know, cynicism and pessimism, but I I think it's reasonable at this point for me to worry about the extent to which a good, proper, sophisticated look at maintenance will be delivered as part of that auger review response. Well, yes, I mean, (laughs) they've had time to come up with a considered response, (laughs) um, certainly, but whether uh, that time has been used appropriately. uh, uh, It's interesting because, of course, when I worked in Whitehall and we did slightly change, slightly increase, actually, the total um, maintenance package when the fees went up in 2012 in England, um, I did see that often these decisions are just a bit random. You know, the maintenance package went up a bit in 2012 because it was a bit of a sop, you know, in return for the fees going up. Um, and also there was some politics as well, of course, between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. Um, but, it, but it wasn't, I've got to admit, it wasn't a considered um, assessment of uh, the current cost of living for students. And one of those is probably overdue. The Auger report recommended it. Um, and uh, it should happen, I think. And uh, actually, some, even that some of the student accommodation providers are, are, are up for that conversation. Um, and, it, you know, we should never be afraid of the evidence. And what London Hire has done today, actually, is produce an evidence-rich report. And that's why it's worth taking seriously. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Nick and Sunday, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.